Welcome to episode eight of the Dotted Line series on contract drafting presented by Davis Wright Tremaine. I'm Craig Baker. And I'm Wendy Kearns. And today we are going to talk about the all important topic of ownership, probably the next most important thing after we talk about money, uh, which we've done for the last two episodes. So today we'll explore uh, ownership in intellectual property and a lot about the psychology of ownership and why people want to own things and why maybe they don't. Yeah, this is always one of those two or three reasons why somebody actually picks up the phone and calls a, a lawyer. You know, uh, I'm I'm always struck by um, th- this is this is one of those triggers that that people immediately say, "I need to figure this out." Um, and often, um, you know, there is, um, um, as Wendy says, a, a psychology around um, around these these kinds of things, uh, and that they want to. Um, there, there's a, a there's always a question between what it is that they actually want and what it is that uh, that they think that that they're entitled to or, or or ought to have, and so we'll we'll pick that apart or pull that apart during this uh, during this episode. Yeah, um, it's it, it's funny. I, I think that uh, for me, and I'm sure you too, Craig. Uh, you, you know, p- people sometimes jump to the. I need to own or, you know, they have an instinctual, I need this and it's mine um, without really thinking of what their goals are. Um, and this, this happens across business contexts and at all, you know, levels of people that um, we deal with, whether you're new to this or you've been doing it a, a while, but uh, there, there's, there's definitely a a feeling um, when people do deals that they want as much as possible out of it. But uh, there's definitely ways to solve intellectual property problems with, uh, with licenses or other sorts of rights uh, or other divisions of ownership rather than owning everything at all. So I, I think that's definitely, you know, that's definitely a question that I've probably asked 50 times in the last year. You know, why, why do you want to own this thing that you say you want to own and let's just make sure that that's you know that 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 getting that because it, it get, getting ownership of something it doesn't always come uh it's not not usually free and it often comes at a higher cost than you may need to pay right and i think you also have to understand what it is that you expect to do with it and, and we should sort of back up i mean everyone sort of talks about intellectual property and ip but it's really um you know this it's trademark copyright patent and trade secrets um in its essence and so people will talk about their ip rights but they haven't even necessarily parsed out which of those intellectual property rights they they want um and then the thing about intellectual property which makes it both um complicated and also um, um, you know something that you can often find a solution for is that um, unlike in an analog um, you know physical real property kind of possession uh, possession um, element where you can actually you will actually possess something in intellectual property you can make a copy two people can have intellectual property rights in a thing um, and exploit those intellectual property rights and so there are different ways that you can sort of slice and dice things and so a lot of times what you're doing with your contract is figuring out what are the rights that I'm entitled to? What are the rights that my counterparty is entitled to? Um, how do we want to allocate those? Um, and you know, going to your point, Wendy, the most important thing is, is trying to figure out what's important 
um, to the client in a, in a particular situation and, and what does it, you know, what does it look like? So Wendy, when you're talking, when, when people are, you're asking these questions, I mean, how, how do you, how do you identify and find those things out when you're, when you're asking those questions? Yeah, well, uh, I think you just made a good point there, Craig, uh, that, you know, where the things we're talking about here is not Blackacre. It's not, it's not a, a parcel of land that either, you know, I get or you don't get or you, you get or I get or neither of us get. Um, it, it absolutely is uh, things that can can be replicated, and for the for the most part, or you know that bundle of copyright sticks we 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 talked about, where you can pull apart different uh, you know different rights in it. So, um, so yeah, I, I you know when I when I talk to people about this, really I try to figure out what their business goals are, and um, you know what how or why they want to achieve those goals uh and if ownership is really just something they're trying to get or not give because they're worried about exclusivity or they're worried about um excluding someone else from the market or sometimes they're worried about uh someone else you know competing with them um and often though you know those sorts of considerations can be um solved other other ways rather than just saying I need to be the sole you know sole owner of this thing so I really try to understand what they're trying to do from a business perspective and and what you know what are the things that are being created or transferred or licensed or you know what what's the subject of of the agreement yeah I mean your your clients sound more sophisticated than mine a lot of times mine are just sort of well I'm paying for it so therefore I should own it um, or um, there's a lot of, well, I want to own it because I just don't know what's going to happen in the future. And I think you see that, um, you know, that sort of, we don't want to have a situation later where we left some right on the table um, that is now valuable. We really want to ensure that we we have kept that. I think that that's probably um, um uh, a more prevalent, particularly among large um, organizations, that you know, very prevalent view, which is, I, I want to own everything in part because I don't know what's going to be valuable later. Right. Um, and, the, and, I paid for it, so therefore I should own it. Thing uh, to your point is also very common in the vendor scenario. You know, where I'm hiring you to do something, you're going to give me work product, you know, things that you developed for me. Uh, and, um, you know, once you give it to me as a, a deliverable, then um, I paid for its creation, therefore I should own it. That That is, I, I would say, definitely a scenario I see all the time um, too. And it sounds like that's, that's definitely common for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you know, and, and sometimes when you're having these initial conversations about how to allocate ownership too, you have to sort of understand, you know, what is the independent value? I mean, I've had conversations with folks where they're like, well, I really want to own the work product, but then I'm like, well, what is the value of the work product by itself without the platform that it's sitting on, without, you know, the the other sort of accoutrement that are around the thing that you're you're owning. Um, and 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 then people are like, well, I, I, I'm not sure, but but uh, but again, you get sort of back to that same um, logic, and so sometimes you, you know you can really dig in um, to the psychology of it. So yeah. so what 
Oh, go ahead. So, so I was just going to say, I, I've definitely, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, the Solomon's baby of intellectual property. You know, yeah. I, I want to own this piece and it doesn't really matter to me that I can't maybe necessarily use it without this other piece. Right. Or, <laughs> but yeah, that's, it, it's, it's sometimes the psychology is more important in these things than, than the sense of it. Right, right. So, so in terms of the sections, when you when you, we get to a contract on on intellectual property, uh, I mean, we get to the section of a contract that that addresses intellectual property. Um, you know, typically, what I see is, you know, you will see um, some assertion of or of um, you know, one party will assert that they own, um, you know, what they own, and another party will assert, uh, you know, what, what, um, what they own. Um, and then you'll talk about, um, you know, what it is that's being produced um, under the contract. And so, you know, the first question is, you know, what is it exactly that um, one party is producing? So, you know, is it everything under the contract? Is it the work product? Are there specific deliverables? Um, you know, how do you define the thing that's being created where there might be some sort of ownership transfer um, that might be happening? Um, and then what are the, you know, other elements of, um, you, you know, of the thing that's being delivered to the extent that, that the transfer, the ownership um, can't be transferred. Um, and then you usually will have a bunch of retained rights and, and sort of disclaimers and disclosures about, um, you know, we're going to continue to to retain these, you know, these rights. Um, in the piece. So it's, it's fundamentally, it is, you know, the first part of the intellectual property clause um, tends to be this, um, you know, dividing up of the puzzle pieces um, so that, um, you know, everybody sort of knows who, who gets which pile of, of puzzle pieces and then, and then, you know, and, and so that, that they can, can all go back together again. Um, you know, what, what are the, I mean, is that consistent with the structure that you typically see? Yeah, yeah. I think in terms of the, the, the specific uh, puzzle pieces, I, I see the, the work product, which we refer to, I see that work product definition um, used often um, as the thing that is being, uh, that is being created under the agreement, the new, you know, new work that a vendor might create or whoever might be being hired to commission. Um, and I see something called the deliverable sometimes uh, as the entire thing, uh, which could, could be the newly created work plus um, other intellectual property. And um, the other intellectual property, uh, so you might have, to take a step back, you might have a let's say a vendor who is creating, you know, let's use software, an example, using new software code, they're going to create some new code, um, but it's going to rely on some existing software libraries or software code that the vendor already has. That existing code could be called either pre-existing work or sometimes background IP or um, Craig, what are other words that you hear for these, uh, these things? I mean, pre-existing platforms. Um, often, I'll see people use tools. Um, sometimes, if if there's, you know, if it's know-how or or something that they're using to create the the item, um, or um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the key point, um, which, which I think we've suggested, but we should make explicit, is the most important thing in this section is that everybody uses different language. And so you really need to, to pay attention to the definitions of all these things, because what is, what is reserved um, is going to be one bucket. What is 
transferred is going to be a second bucket and what is licensed is going to be a third bucket. Absolutely. And so so the names of the things are different. And uh, to your point earlier, the intellectual property components of what is in this bucket uh, could be different. It could just be very specific items. It could be all of the intellectual property rights that might be in those items. So it could be it could be certain things, but it could exclude the patents, you know, any patents, it could include the patents, it could include copyrights, it could exclude copyrights, it could include, you know, rights to trademarks or not. Uh, it's very important to look through, you know, what's the what's included and excluded in these in these definitions, which it should be said, really, in all of our contracts. Uh, all of our contract classes here, that definitions will be the death of you if you don't uh, read them carefully and figure out how they, uh, how they work. So these, these defined terms can, can be very tricky, particularly in the, in the ownership and IP clauses. Yeah, and I think it's really important to sort of take those things and figure out, um, you know, often what's not being said. I mean, one, one of the things which I think um, you know, the, there is an art to, to recognizing, um, the, the omissions. And there are many clever lawyers out there who have drafted contracts that omit, um, certain things because they're, they're trying to, um, you know, not trigger a response, um, you know, in, in terms of the way that, that something might be drafted. And so, um, one of the things I will often notice is, um, you know, that, that a, a definition might exclude something, or for instance, you know, one thing that you'll see um, is these nested definitions where you have a platform and a product and software, and they all sort of um, are at different places in the stack. And maybe the, the um, transfer is happening and you think it's it's at one place on the stack, but the transfer is actually um, taking place at at some place, um, you know, farther uh, you know farther upstream or downstream in the stack. And so, um, understanding sort of how these nested definitions work together, you know, is another place where where folks can sometimes um, you know miss something, and then you you find out that oh well, I have rights. Uh, or I've acquired the, the the ownership of the software, but not the platform that it's sitting on, um, and right. that. Right. Yeah, that 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 whole that whole part. So you could have transfership of the ownership of you know whatever the software is or whatever the thing is that you think you're getting the rights to, um, and then the license piece of that becomes very important, and how that thing is defined becomes very important because software often can't you know doesn't operate on its own. It needs other supporting parts. You know what. Uh, depending on what what the software is, it's going to need something else to to operate in all likelihood. Um, and and so if 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 you're in a situation like that, um, you know, look, paying attention to um, the the underlying rights to to the associated things uh, is, is is super important. And, and looking at things like um, is it is it are, you know, are you getting licensed to things that were created under this agreement, outside the agreement, you know, in, independently created, 
Um, do they include, uh, if it's running on a separate platform, does that platform include updates or upgrades? And how long is that license for? Um, is it for just the ter term of this agreement or um, longer? Um, you know, all, all of those all of those different things. I mean, uh, this episode is on ownership, but uh, this part is uh, so important because you want to make sure that if you get rights, uh, if you get ownership rights that you fought for so hard that they're not useless ownership rights. Yeah, I, I think in one of the places or one of the types of agreements where I think this is um, very, um, uh, you have to be very careful about this is any professional services or consulting agreement, because a lot of times um, what somebody is doing is selling um, advice or they're selling um they're selling output that is tied to a template. In fact, you know, frankly, we're in this, you know, if, if I'm giving someone a contract, I'm, I'm almost guaranteeing you that I didn't write it from scratch. And so, you know, I am, I'm bringing in sort of know-how I'm bringing in, um, you know, wisdom and, and things. And, and this, you see this with other kinds of professional services folks. And so, um, you'll often have, um, um, you know, I had something with a client earlier this week where, you know, we were trying to parse, you know, we were delivering to the client, to, to the end customer, uh, a set of templates, and we were not transferring the templates themselves and the IP and the templates, but we were going to give them ownership of the templates with the completed data in it. So you have to sort of parse between this idea that I'm, I'm giving you this deliverable without giving you kind of the skeleton that the deliverable sits into. I was working um, on a template steal this week too. I wasn't negotiating opposite you, right? I, I don't I don't recall. Okay. Uh, it's, well, it's, I, I haven't gotten it back from the other side yet. So maybe 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 it is. Uh, <laughs> I did check conflicts. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, so but I think that you know you you do see these um, places where someone is um, and maybe they are um, giving you, they're transferring to you the copyrights in the work, but they're um, reserving all the trademarks around it so that you'll be able to use um, the content um, and own the content, but not the branding that that sort of sits on top of it. Um, and so you'll often see, um, particularly any kind of, of, of output type deals where you're getting, um, I see this a lot with ad agency um, deals and, um, and and other consulting deals um, as well, where we just, you, you know, you're, you're trying, you, you really are sort of parsing um, things um, which are really just reports. I mean, at, at, at some level, um, and yet it's it is that core element of, of what's being purchased is the wisdom and advice, really, of the person providing the, the the professional services. Right, and so not you know not all things that could be deemed as owned under an agreement are protectable under IP. They're not always they're not well, always protectable. Yeah. Um, and uh, but some of some of the you know having ownership or retaining ownership is is a little bit of a um, insurance policy. Yeah. Right. And and one of the things to, to keep an eye on too, which I think we talked about in the license clause as well, are these dependent clauses that that make transfer of ownership dependent on you know full payment or dependent on some other conditions present that are happening. Um, and these are things where um, you could imagine that if a relationship falls apart, I've seen this happen a number of times in the context of web 
um, site designs or other kind of graphic design deals where someone will own the data, but not the sort of graphic, like not the user experience that comes with it um, because they there was a dispute over payment or there was some other dispute that happened. And so the vendor just said, okay, well, here's your stuff. Um, but that was not what we thought we were getting. What yeah, here's we the getting. words on your page and here's your content back, but it's, you lost your entire framework on which to operate your, your website. I, I, yeah, I've definitely seen that before. Uh, where um, it, it doesn't even happen in a dispute sometimes. It's, it's like you hire a build design run shop for your website and then the contract ends and then they, you know, as you say, give, they leave you with a pile of bones at the end and then the customer's like, wait, what just happened? You know? uh, so yeah, really understanding up, up front what, uh, what you think you're, you're getting. Right. And, and those conditions on on the transfer. Um, now, when you when you you will normally see in an IP section where there is a transfer of of works, um, you'll have um, there there's an assignment or a work for hire clause. Um, normally, these say, you know, that a work is a work for hire. Um, and then if it's not deemed to be a work for hire, because work for hire is actually a um, term of art within the Copyright Act. Um, but they'll say if it's not deemed to be a work for hire, then um, you'll go through this assignment clause, which which basically says that the copyright owner or the creator of the intellectual property will assign ownership to this. Um, usually it's a copyrighted work, but it could be other things um, as well. But they will assign um, the right and title um, um, to the to the um assignee to the to the person buying uh buying the work and so um you want to make sure um that that assignment clause includes all of the obligations to cooperate to sign things to to sort of work through any kind of actual um, transfer because you don't want to have a situation where you have um a you know you have an have intent demonstrated in the contract but then not an obligation to to sort of follow through in terms of a transfer of a trademark at the trademark office or a transfer um, of a copyright registration or something where you could end up having um, a cloud on the ownership. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think we, we talked about this maybe in episode three, but uh, you you cannot rely solely on a work for hire clause. That's for copyrighted works only. It's only certain types of copyrights. And a work for hire clause, it should generally think of as a fragile thing. Uh, there, you can't have a bunch of conditions on the work for hire uh, clause either. Like, um, you know, the work for hire is only effective if it's something is paid for, you know, in a certain manner. And if you have these conditions, and sometimes the work for hire can fail. Um, there's various cases on the work for hire failing because the the commissioner of the work is deemed to be the author upon its creation. And so if you monkey with that principle too much, um, you can have work for hire issues. It's, it's always a good idea, even if you think you've got an airtight work for hire situation, that you put this backup assignment because you're you know often dealing with other kinds of IP besides just copyrights. Sometimes it's just copyrights, oftentimes it's not. Um, and then, and have the assignment catch whatever uh, is not subject to that work for hire clause um, and say, you know, the intellectual property rights and all other rights, because um, some of it might not be uh, 
by P, um, or it might be unprotectable, and we'll talk about data in a second. Um, you want to make sure that that is assigning things correctly. You know, which whichever side of the fence you're on, to to be honest, um, and um, and and getting that and getting that backup uh, that backup assignment, which may be the only thing um, that's assigned. And IP does not get assigned by accident you have to have a written assignment that is like black letter intellectual property law it cannot happen by accident it can't, can't happen by conduct of the parties you have to have that written transfer so um really important that you you um get 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 your assignment in there right yeah there's no implied transfer of of, of intellectual property the way that you might have an implied license in a different context so so you mentioned data why don't you um talk to us about sort of how you think about um data in this context yeah so data um is in one of the gray areas of um of law in terms of what you know what is it is it is it intellectual property is it copyrightable is it a secret is it so trade secret is a confidential information, you know, it's sort of in this uh, fuzzy area and and data can be publicly known or not publicly known as it has a lot of characteristics. Um, it can be facts, which uh, are, are themselves not copyrightable, but data can be arranged in a way that is <laughs> that makes it copyrightable because of the unusual arrangement of it. Um, so the the best practices for data are to govern all of its rights by contract. And we often see data treated as uh, copyrights. It can also be treated under privacy language, um, and uh, you can you talk about data as as if it were, um, you know, under under a privacy policy or, or things like that. But uh, making clear the rights uh, of of each party to data and and its derivatives and its you know use and who owns the data and who owns modifications to the data and all of that stuff must be done by contract uh, um, otherwise you proceed at your own risk you know with with intellectual property we know what happens if there is no contract there's well settled laws and i mean there's well settled laws around data too but um there there's well settled law around what happens you know what are the rights of a copyright holder if there is no contract in place right uh, we, we we can kind of tell you that with with data um, having contract language and contracts spelling out um, the, the rights to that are, are super important, both for the data owner and for the data user. <laughs> yeah, I want to underline that. I mean, I think that, you know, normally you're going to see ownership, so to speak, typically gets, gets um, um, slotted in the intellectual property clause and Questions about use of data often will get um, par made part of either the confidentiality section or there'll be some sort of legal compliance security data processing agreement. We're seeing that happen more and more um, with all of the new data um, privacy laws. Um, but, you know, the the sort of way that data is allocated, you're, you're, you're going to see that, um, it, you know, in terms of ownership being allocated, you're going to see that more and more um, in the intellectual property section. Um, and I increasingly, you're going to, I'm starting to see the data, like multiple data categories. Um, you know, I think, you know, sometimes I will see people just think of data 
and then they attach a data processing agreement or something. And really what they're talking about is personal data and they're not talking about data as an asset. Um, and they're really just talking about the treatment of data. So you really want to sort of figure out whether there is, you know, are there analytics or is there data as an asset that is not necessarily personally identifiable data? Um, and how does the ownership allocation, you know, look in, in, in that context? Yeah. And then this, it's already complicated. It gets com more complicated every year as people realize the value of data and data derivatives and generated data with all of the machine learning and artificial intelligence um, development happening today and which will continue to be increased. You know, it's like data is the new IP or data is the new currency or data is the, data you is know. The oil. <laughs> It is the oil. That's what uh, <laughs> right. Frank from Under Armour says. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting too to think about. Um, you know, there are um, often there is a little clause that is often slotted into the data rights language, which is I can use the data to perform the obligations under the contract, which I think everybody agrees is, is going to be acceptable. And then there's always from every vendor, um, there's going to be language that says, you know, and I can use the data to improve my products or to improve and, and develop my products or to do something. Um, and you just need to make sure because because sometimes those are very broad um, you know, it's still quote internal use only kind of um, language, but but those can be pretty broad in terms of their actual um, application. Right, or yeah, it can be used for the purposes of running services or improving product. Yeah, I think you said improving right. products, improving service. some of these you can't, or, or business operations, you know, some of these you can construe in a number of different ways. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And, and again, because these are things that can coexist and, and we can have sort of perfect copies of one another, you know, the, the way that you're defining like there's not there's not a a physical use limitation these are these are basically all being defined by contract um as these go so so the precision i mean precision matters everywhere in contracts but the precision here um is critical to understanding sort of what that long-term um um implication is i think that I, I probably get more questions um about um what do we what sort of rights do we have um asking for interpretations um basically based on how can we use data i think probably almost more than anything other questions sort of where someone's asked me to look at a contract um the termination clause and the you know what rights do we have to use data or how would you interpret this data use clause i mean those are things that people are are constantly sort of when they pull the contract back out uh and look at it that those are the things they're they're asking us to help them interpret yeah well one, one question i get a lot uh at the beginning of the contract is should i jointly own this thing with my counterparty no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and and that's what I say too is no, but to people who are not intellectual property practitioners, it sounds like such a good idea, right? It sounds like, hey, we all can share this thing and we all can just go on our merry way. 
No, <laughs> it's it, it, it's actually the opposite. It's it, it, joint ownership is like creating a child with somebody else, and then you are married to them, or you have to deal with them for the rest of the life of the intellectual property. It's it is very tough, and joint ownership should not be the thing that you you think is going to fix everything, but it ends up making your relationship a lot more longer and co more complicated than you ever thought it could be. Yeah, and I mean, we should talk about um, why that is the case. I mean, you know, the the, the sort of the top level um, issue is it, it just what you can do with a, as a joint owner varies significantly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So in some instances, you know, you have to get permission from all joint owners in order to authorize something. In other jurisdictions, you only have to get um, authorization from a single joint owner. Um, so you could imagine, you know, you're in a you're in a band and and the copyright is owned um, equally by four members of the band. Does that mean I have to get all four members to consent to something? or only one member to consent to consent to it um, you know another problem is you know grants of uh, you know any kind of transfer of the intellectual property becomes you know more difficult when you have um, other uh, joint owners and and how you can you know create um, you know if you have joint owners you may actually have sort of um, parallel um, um, lines of, of derivative works that have been authorized separately. Um, and, you know, and in, and in some contexts, you know, you have an obligation to um, a, a account um, with those folks. In some jurisdictions, you might actually have to share revenue um, based on it. So it, it is really complicated. And what we generally recommend is um, that one party owns it, and then the other party has a right equivalent to ownership. And so you get a license right that has 98.5% of the scope of the rights, and it's usually enough um, you know, for, um, you, you know, in order to exploit pretty much anything that you would want to exploit under the contract. Um, and so you know, typically the the solution we recommend is is not the joint ownership, but rather that um, license equivalent to ownership. Yeah, and in the patent realm, it's 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 equally as fraught. You can have two companies end up, uh, you know, co-owning a patent, and and then yeah. they have to figure out who's going to pay for the prosecution costs, and then what happens if someone infringes in this patent? Who has to pay for the court costs? And who has to do the enforcement? And what happens, you know, what happens what, if right, what rights you have to the improvements and right and the invalidity the, suits and the whole the whole nine the whole nine yards. Uh, so you know, there are definitely cases where businesses will go into joint ownership things together. These are usually highly sophisticated, intentional, you know, right. joint ventures or other joint uh, developments where people are pooling their resources and they have thought through all of this stuff and its ramifications in great detail. If you are in um, that uh, circumstance, bravo to you, you may not need this class. But uh, uh, if, if you're not in that circumstance, um, in general, we, uh, we, we wave the caution flag many times here for you. Right. Yeah. No, I think that, yeah, that, that, that is the key point, which is intention. So if, if someone is intentional about it, there are, there are good reasons to do it. But fundamentally, where I see it most is we're doing a joint collaboration agreement and we should, um, you know, we want to work together uh, um, on things. So, so Wendy, I understand we have a question. We do. Audience. We do. Uh, our audience has come through again. 
Uh, okay, here it is. How do I handle ownership when there are third parties being incorporated into a deliverable? So I see this in two different contexts. Um, one of the situations is where um, usually it's a software situation, although some uh, you might have it too in, in like a multimedia work, like a movie or a television program. Um, but, but what happens is um, you might have something that's either open, so it's an open source um, and it comes with, you know, very sort of specific terms, or there's a third-party licensor and, and the um, work is being embedded. And, you know, fundamentally, you can't transfer title to, um, to the third-party work. And so typically, you handle the third-party work in the same way that you would handle, um, you know, pre-existing work that you yourself are licensing. Um, if I'm the purchaser in this instance, you know, one of the things I want to make sure of is that there is... Um, you know, maybe there's not a, there's a covenant not to sue. Maybe you know I want to make sure that the scope of the license rights are broad enough that it doesn't um, 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 essentially um, vitiate the whole sort of reason for me buying the thing because I end up having really narrow rights, but I paid for broad rights. So so fundamentally, it's really about. I mean, you're, you're going to have to take whatever it is subject to those rights, but you're going to but but you want to make sure that those rights. Um, are roughly similar to the to the rights that you would expect as the as the owner. Um, is that sort of how you would would pull pull that apart? Yeah, I, I I definitely think so. I mean the 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 whole idea if you're commissioning if if you're hiring a vendor and you're commissioning a deliverable, in the end the whole goal here is to try to get something that you could use. Um, and you know if you're a vendor you want to deliver something that uh, your customer can use. And if the customer has to go out and buy a bunch of rights from third parties in order to use this thing, um, either that should be called out in the price or called out in the conditions, or the party delivering it should have to go and get those rights, you know, in order to affect the purposes of the agreement. Now, that's, those are the best intentions of both parties when they enter the agreement. But uh, sometimes, you know, there'll be a third party product or a service or something else that gets added into this deliverable, either because the customer requested or the vendor, you know, decided it would be the best thing to use. And it's not contemplated how the economics of this are going to be, are, are going to happen. So, well, you have to go, you know, go to a very large database vendor and spend thousands of dollars on their product in order to contain, you know, the data that you commissioned, or you suddenly have to like go and buy a cloud subscription to this, you know, thing that you, you commissioned uh, and you didn't have one. Uh, so try, you know, it's, it's good to get the technical people to scope those things um, up, up front and to have a, a, a clause in the agreement that at least spurs this discussion among the parties uh, that, uh, you know, basically just says, this is what's going to happen with, you know, any third party deliverables, who's going to pay for those. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is you don't want it to be a surprise. Um, you know, you've, you've definitely, I've definitely seen this on the, you know, on the entertainment side too, um, where you find out that somebody, um, you know, I had a situation where we were, we were, in this case, we were licensing something, but we were licensing a song for, for, for use. Um, and we found out very late in the game that the, the, um, 
song was that was actually had a co-composer and had a co-writer to it um, who was represented by a completely different agent, a completely different publisher. And suddenly in the 11th hour, we had to go out and and clear those rights. And that was never contemplated in the budget. And it was, you know, it, it definitely blew our budget. So, nice. you know, <laughs> yeah, making sure it's not a surprise is important. Um, so, Wendy, do you have a tip, a trick, or a quirk for us this week? I do, I do. Uh, so, I think mine would be uh, in the in the ownership clause. Craig talked about you know kind of the typical layout we see in the ownership clauses, whereas you know I own my stuff, you own your stuff. Here's the you know ownership of the thing that's being created under this agreement, and then so on and so forth, depending on what else is being delivered into the agreement. Um, where you see these clauses in any agreement where it says, I own my stuff and you own your stuff, that's actually just a recitation of the law. Um, where, you know, I always own my stuff and you always own your stuff. And, and these are these are kind of feel good statements and they're pretty entirely unnecessary if you aren't transferring ownership or doing doing anything and they're you know almost entirely unnecessary anyway they do tend to make people feel better and sometimes they offer some drafting clarity i think the lesson to learn from this is don't think that you're assigning things or you're doing anything by by the basic statements i own this and you own that you know like like we said you know intellectual property doesn't you can't just you can't just make it magically transfer by saying, I, you know, I own this, you know, I could say, well, I won the Super Bowl. It doesn't make it true. But, uh, you know, you, you have to actually do the assignment or a work for hire in order to, you know, act, have something transfer from one party to another. So, you know, put in these clauses if you, if it makes the, everyone feel good, uh, but don't use them as a, like, you're depending on them to like really clarify or transfer IP rights between the parties. What about you, Craig? So my my tip is that I think people ought to be a, be creative um, in thinking about ways to address the issues that often come up with that, with intellectual property. Um, often, when you're having a fight over ownership of intellectual property, the the subtext is often um, not really around. Um, the actual ownership of the intellectual property. It's that you want to preserve a competitive advantage or you want to make sure that someone else isn't making money off of something that you collaborated or, or that you commissioned or funded in the first instance, or that you want to make sure that something doesn't get sold out from underneath you um, later in, in the process and that you lose access to the, to the thing that you were um, that you were buying. And so um, one of the things that I've, I've found is that people tend to get locked into the idea of intellectual property, um, qua intellectual property, that, that, that this is really the focus of what they, they want to talk about. Um, and not really thinking about, oh, well, I might be able to manage some of this by including an exclusivity clause, including a right to purchase, you know, a right of first refusal on purchasing the IP if, if, if the IP comes up for sale or some kind of revenue stream for, you know, secondary exploitation by a vendor if you're the, if you're the, the person commissioning, you know, the work in the first instance. And so there are a lot of different ways that you can um, you know, you can preserve category um, non-competes and, you know, or or ensure that somebody isn't sort of entering a market, you know, within a certain period of time, which can preserve really the essence of why somebody wanted to own something in the first instance. Um, 
And those are all things that I think people tend to, you know, it, it's very easy to kind of compartmentalize things within a contract. And so I guess that would be my my tip is to, to avoid um, compartmentalizing um, solutions because you might be able to bring solutions from other parts and, and apply them here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been episode eight of The Dotted Line by Davis Wright Tremaine. In episode nine, we're going to cover a grab bag of materials. We're going to talk some more about data because it's, uh, as, as, we, as we said, data is king or queen uh, these days. Uh, and uh, uh, we'll also cover confidentiality and security and perhaps some disaster recovery. Yep, that um, all all the things to make sure um, that uh, um, when bad things happen, um, you get notice. Uh, so we'll look forward to talking with you uh, next week about those clauses. See you in episode nine.